The other day, my wife was playfully chiding me for getting old as I neurotically pointed out the disparity in gas prices across the city. 365 in Hillsborough Village, Woodbine 335. In Hendersonville, where the old Nashville money lives, 316 while the rich get richer. Another tell of how many dizzying trips around the sun I've made is the repetition of my stories. By now you've probably heard the tale of how my best friend Brandon and I got stranded in Jamaica following Hurricane Irma in 2017. He had left from Orlando and was already in the air when they began canceling flights. My connection from Nashville to Montego Bay was in Fort Lauderdale. At the gate, I befriended this old hippie who had a second home on the island, and to keep with the stereotype, he was all, Don't worry, my man, we'll make it. Turns out, he was right. And as the last flight they let out to the island that day banked away from the coastline, I could see through the window a large, dark mass of gurgling clouds. Irma curved north over, over Cuba, making a direct hit on the tip of Florida where we had just come from. The devastating storm left a path of destruction from Turks up through Orlando. There were people at our hotel in Jamaica frantically trying to get a hold of family in the Wayward Isles, and back home in Florida, my brother-in-law was dealing with a fallen tree now residing in the cab of his truck. But for all that drama, the island of Jamaica was virtually untouched. You would never have known anything was happening. Beautiful weather and calm seas. Seas so calm, in fact, the waves seem to roll out like someone tossing a bedsheet rather than cresting in white-capped breaks. Our trip was planned for four days. Montego Bay, Ocho Rios. Although nothing was really planned except relaxing and going where the ganja-filled breeze blew us. It was quite ironic, actually, for two people who don't smoke weed. This was before mainstream legalization in the States, and openly smelling marijuana everywhere in public hadn't become commonplace yet. Not to mention the strange expressions we garnered as what seemed to be the only two people on the island not partaking in the many party favors offered to us at nauseam. We made some vacation friends, visited Ochi and the Duns River waterfalls, found a local spot at Mahogany Beach, ate tons of jerked meats, and partied in Montego Bay at night gazing out over the bay, tinted purple by Caribbean sunset against the backdrop of mountain descending into the sea. Along the mountain's crenellations cutting across the sky, the plumage of backlit royal palms cut a tropical silhouette. It was magical, and I hated to see it end. Lucky for us, it wasn't going to. It turns out, while we were parading around Paradise, Irma had caused enough damage to Fort Lauderdale Airport that no planes could fly out. It would be another two days past our scheduled departure before they could send a flight to come get us. Essentially, we were marooned on a tropical island. Which would have been fine, except neither of us really financially planned to be there any extra days, and ATMs in Montego Bay are, out of, are they're about as dependable as, well, ATMs in Montego Bay. The hotel did cut us a deal, and we were able to live off each other's credit cards for uh, the few days. And honestly, those were the best two days of the trip. We truly lived like beach bums. Lounging on Doctor's Cave Beach during the day, sipping red stripes at night, either 
eating at the Margaritaville, which became a local club after hours, finding a cheap local jerk spot, or just chilling at the hotel bar where our bartender Cool Kenny mixed up his Jamaican rum punch for the nightly happy hours. It was kind of amazing living like that, with no cares, just floating in the crystal clear, lazy Caribbean waters. It was on this trip that I also first became acquainted with real Jamaican rum. This trip was also special for another reason. It was my first foray into tropical adventure. Sure, having grow up, growing up near the east coast of Florida, I was no stranger at all to seaside shenanigans and maritime mischief. But this was right about the time I was coming out of a funk and really searching for some inspiration. Not just in my writing and music, but to reinvigorate my passion for life. After the infamous quote from my friend Kyle, the uh, find something that makes you happy, I began spending more and more time visiting old haunts like Cocoa Beach and taking solo trips down to Destin and Amelia Island. These were faded by the muses indeed, but I needed something more. Something the creative antecedents like Hemingway, Buffett, and Thompson had laid the itinerary for. I needed to get down island way. It was around this time I also found myself in another transition, going from the whiskey and red wine, red wine soaked nights, which had become all too easy in Nashville, Tennessee, to my, lo- my new love, rum. I have much love for all my rummy peeps out there, but... Before there were run rum clubs and tiki bars in Nashville, I was bugging the local bartenders about their rum selections, talking with liquor shop owners, and attending seminars by Jeff Berry. Notwithstanding, my knowledge of Jamaican rum was limited to Myers, which, by the way, still remains one of my favorites. But it was in Montego Bay that I learned that Myers is mostly an export from the island. In Jamaica, at least the town we were in, they drank two rums, Appleton Estate and the local favorite, Ray and Nephew. One day, Brandon and I decided to walk along the coast road away from town. Old hotels and a few ramshackled lean-tos. We walked for quite a while, watching the sea gently wash over the rocks lining the shore road. Occasionally, an aperture in the boulder-sized stones would allow a crashing wave to sprout upwards into, onto the road and bathe our feet before receding back to the sea. At the end of the street, we found a small local rum shack. I couldn't tell you the name of the place if it had one. It was occupied by just a few Jamaicans leaning on the bar, one of which who introduced himself as Mr. Cool. Mr. Cool had skinny dreadlocks and wore workout shorts and a bright tank top. We let him order for us, and what came out was a small bottle of Ray and Nephew Coco Loco coconut rum and two Coca-Colas. That was, to this day, the best coconut rum I've ever tasted, and despite modern aversions to Coke, Jamaican rum blends perfectly with the flavor of cola. We also had another drink, a light, fruity drink in which we mixed simply regular overproof Ray and Nephew with a light, fruity soda. A drink that is known to be a favorite among Jamaican locals and visitors alike, and is the topic of this episode. A drink called Ray and Ting. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tony, and this is Pod Tiki. Sure, Ray and Ting is a simple highball, rum and soda. But it's the unique profile of Jamaican rum that separates this drink from its highball cousins like rum and coke or whiskey ginger. So, let's talk about that. 
A comprehensive dive into Jamaican rum's rich history and myriad complexities would warrant an entire episode of its own, and perhaps it will someday. For today, though, we're just going to take a brief stroll along the timeline of Jamaican rum. The prevailing theory is that rum as we know it began on the island of Barbados. It began as a rotgut working-class alcohol for the people. Well, let's call it like it is, for the slaves working the highly lucrative sugar plantations. You see, when the British arrived in Barbados, they immediately came to realize three undeniable truths. One, the people could dance way better than them. Two, it was really hot. And three... That tropical climate was ideal for cultivating sugar, which at this time in history was pretty much like stumbling into a gold mine. Or, more accurately, finding a gold mine that already had people living in it and saying, you know what? This is ours now. When the folks working the fields discovered they could distill the byproduct molasses, it all began. Eventually, the fine European wines and brandies became hard to get, so colonizers elevated production methods of rum and began aging the rum, creating the fine spirit we have today. Columbus stumbled upon the island of Jamaica way back in 1494. Once he realized he wasn't in Asia, he claimed the land for Spain, who held it till the British took over in 1655. Funny anecdote, While driving the coast road from Montego Bay to Ocho Rios, we passed the bay where Columbus famously landed. Our driver exclaimed, Look, this is where Columbus discovered us. His sarcasm not lost amid his thick Jamaican accent. The Brits brought rum over from Barbados, where due to production methods and the local terroir, it evolved into its own signature style. Infamous Port Royal resident Captain Henry Morgan was known to be quite a fan of Jamaican rum, further cementing the inextricable bond between pirate culture and rum. Another famous lover of Jamaican rum used it in a holiday recipe, and to this day, I still recreate George Washington's eggnog each Christmas. In fact, before New England rum became prevalent, it was Jamaican rums which most early Americans preferred and is said to have played more than a small role in the backroom meetings of revolutionaries. But what is it that makes Jamaican rum so distinctive? Cue the song, Give Up the Funk by Parliament. We want the funk, we've got the funk, give up the funk. Yeah, the hallmark of a good Jamaican rum is a deep yet high on the palate flavor note. Imagine overripe fruit mixed with rich molasses. It's an esoteric note that's difficult to describe, and I haven't really seen anyone do it just yet. Or do it justice yet. Which is why that flavor is known by rum aficionados as simply Jamaican funk. But there is some science behind it. The funk is created in two facets. Pot still distillation, which is a more traditional method of distilling using large versions of the copper pot stills you may associate with moonshine. And... Wild fermentation. That is, using yeasts that ferment naturally. This creates esters. Esters are a chemical compound that occurs when natural yeasts mix with molasses. And this creates unique flavors. More esters equal more funk. And Jamaican rums are known for having high ester counts. 
To further increase esters, Jamaican distillers use a longer aging process aided by the tropical climate and the addition of dunder. I know this is getting a little confusing, but dunder is the leftover distillate from previous batches of rum. This can be added during fermentation to boost the funkiness even further. Think of how sour mash whiskey is used to make Tennessee whiskey from one old batch to the new batch. In some cases, sugarcane molasses is added post-distillation and left to brew naturally, giving the rum a darker hue and richer flavor. Now, there are some high ester seekers out there that are kind of akin to the hops snobs in the craft beer world. Nowadays, Jamaican rum is held to a geographical indication, or GI. This ruling states that Jamaican rum must be made on the island in the territory of the limestone aquifer water basins, must be diluted with filtered limestone water from that geographical area, and must be fermented using, hold on, I'm going to try this, Saccharomyces type yeasts. It also must be distilled in copper pot or column stills and cannot contain added flavors. This ensures that whether pure copper pot or blended, Jamaican rum will remain unique to the island of its birth, no matter how many times it's discovered. It truly is amazing when a product, or a blend thereof, becomes so popular naturally that it's known by name without a big company having to trademark it. I'm looking at you, Painkiller and Dark and Stormy. We're not talking about some generic highball like rum and coke or gin and tonic. No, the Ray and Ting tells you right in the name which products are to be used. J. Ray and Nephew White Overproof Jamaican Rum and Ting Jamaican Grapefruit Soda. Another thing separating Ray and Ting from the Cuba Libre is that Cuban bartenders created the rum and coke to appeal to American tourists, whereas Ray and Ting was already being enjoyed by locals on the island and subsequently taken back by tourists. Now, there's no clear-cut origin date of the Ray and Ting, but it's safe to assume that people have been mixing the two since the soft drink came out in 1976. Originally produced by Desnos and Geds, the makers of Red Stripe, Ting is unique to the islands in that it only uses Jamaican grapefruits. Uh, that also, it might be Desnos and Geddes. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Now, only using Jamaican grapefruits. That's not just some kind of ploy to boost local farming and avoid trade tariffs. No, Caribbean grapefruit actually tastes different than the Mexican or California-grown varieties we're used to stateside. The West Indies grapefruit is more bitter and less sugary. This offers a more authentic fruit flavor in the soda. You team that with the fact that Ting uses cane sugar and no high-fructose corn syrup, and you get a refreshing yet bittersweet drink that is more reminiscent of a light Italian soda than the syrupy fountain drinks. Acquired by Guinness in 1993, Ting was later sold to PepsiCo in 1999. It is widely available throughout the Caribbean, but can be kind of tricky to find in the U.S., in places like Florida, where there's a significant Caribbean population, you can get it in Publix. But deeper into the country, you'll need to find a Jamaican or island market or even a Mexican market. If all else fails, it is available on Amazon, but it's pretty pricey. Ray and Ting is one of those naturally evolving drinks that rises through the ranks because it's not only easy to make and easy to order, but it actually tastes really good as well. And somehow, Ray and Ting has managed to keep its street cred. 
not falling victim to ridicule and bastardizations like some of its highball brethren. Of course, where there's any room to capitalize on an organic trend, it will happen. So in the early 2000s, both J. Ray and Nephew and Ting rose in popularity and influence, and Jamaican rum shacks began suggesting Ray and Ting as the go-to when visitors uttered that famous line. Give me something local. But what about the rum, you say? Well, let's get into it. J. Ray and Nephew white overproof rum is the standard. Not just for this drink, but it's actually the most widely consumed rum on the island. And maybe it's due to my personal experience with it, but I won't make you wait. Ray and Nephew is my favorite Jamaican white overproof rum. I say that because the genre has taken off as of late with the rise of Trapiki culture and the popularity as, of, of rum as a standalone spirit. Therefore, to make this episode a bit more fun, I'm going to compare Ray and Nephew with the other most popular white Jamaican overproof, Rum Fire by Hampton Estate. Now, Ray certainly is the more traditional, but Rum Fire is at the center of so much recent hype, I feel this is the perfect opportunity in my petulant pod-tiki nature to pit the working man's beach shack rum against the highly esteemed Hampton Estate offering. I realize there are other brands in this discussion, mainly Rum Bar by, produced by Worthy Park, but that is not available by me, and although Worthy Park is a formidable adversary, a worthy opponent, one might say, it's the least available and honestly the least talked about among the white Jamaican overproofs that I've heard anyway. But hey, if anybody wants to send me some, I'd be happy to put it in an episode and give you my thoughts. Till then, let's dive into these two Jamaican powerhouses. Covering the basic timeline of Ray, a Scottish immigrant to Jamaica named John Ray opened the Shakespeare Tavern in Kingston in 1825. But this was not another Scottish tragedy. See what I did there? That was for all my literary nerds. Quite the opposite. The tavern did quite well, prompting John Ray to hire his nephew, Charles James Ward, in 1860. Charles ran the business side of things while John stuck to what he did best, making rum and taking names. By 1862, they were bottling and selling their rum to other taverns around the island, and the brand officially became J. Ray and Nephew. The brand proceeded to win a plethora of awards for their rum across the island as well as Europe. Now, this wasn't the modern white version at first. They made the standard Jamaican rum and continued to up to the mid-20th century. Famously, it was J. Ray and Nephew 17-year that Trader Vic used in the original 1944 Mai Tai before production ceased on that particular vintage. In 1916, the company was bought by Lindo Brothers and Company, which in turn also purchased Appleton Estate. Now, Appleton, a powerhouse and staple of Jamaican rums in their own right, is the oldest distillery on the island, dating way back to 1749. In 2012, the whole conglomerate was acquired by our old friends, the Grupo Campari. I wonder if Gaspari Campari ever smoked Jamaican weed. That would be a Campari Fumari. Callback to our Negroni episode. Check that one out. Another notable date would be 1997. That's the year when Joy Spence became the first woman master blender in the industry in charge of J. Ray and Nephew and Appleton Estate, respectively. 
a title she still holds as of the recording of this episode. It can get a bit confusing when it comes to distillers and brands of rum. Um, although all Jamaican rum is made on the island, the individual distilleries can vary per brand under the Campari name even. For instance, Karuba and Com- is a Campari rum that doesn't seem to be affiliated with J. Ray or Appleton. And then other brands, like my favorite dark blended Jamaican rum, Myers, are produced in an undisclosed distillery. The style of white overproof rum is a blend of column and pot still rums that come in a staggering 125 proof. That's a bit of a stinger. The pot still keeps it funky, while the column still adds a light, fruity crispiness that's associated with that style. The result is, at least in the J. Ray and Nephew, a banana with ripe fruit and dark molasses flavor, yet simultaneously crisp and tropical. The nose of J. Ray and Nephew is fruity, sweet, funk, tropical, but with depth. Now, some may argue with my tasting method, but I always I always do a two-ounce pour with a medium ice cube. This is because I want to taste the drink initially out of the bottle, and then how it progresses and opens up with dilution. My initial notes on J. Ray and Nephew Overproof White was sugary with a strong alcohol flavor. Very hot finish, but the funk is present. As the spirit opens up, notes of pastel tropical fruits emerge. You know, like the tropical Skittles. It gets funkier, but not in an unpleasant, astringent way, more in the sense that, that it's incredibly rich and packed to the gills with flavor. Like it borrows all the sweet, summery, fruity notes of Cuban white rum and runs it through a filter of high ester Jamaican funk. Imagine a troupe of dancers dressed like Havana Tropicana girls, but twerking to Jamaican house beats. But there, on the other side of the bar, leering with its nose up and pinky out, is Hampton Estate Rum Fire. By chance, but a weird turn of history, this brand was also founded by a Scot. But instead of John, the bloke next door, we introduce Archibald Sterling. Actually, I can't do a Scottish accent, but I guess it would be Archibald Sterling? Ah, I'm not going to try it. I know, I know. Archibald Sterling. It sounds like a fake name, right? Seriously, can you get any more of a pretentious name than Archibald Sterling? He sounds like a Bond villain. All jokes aside, Hampton Estate makes great rum. But they started way back in 1743 not as a rum distillery, as a sugar plantation on the eponymous named property. In 1779, they built the Hampton Great House as a rum store, and they started making rum locally. Hampton Great House rum still fetches an exclusive price today. By the mid-1800s, Hampton fell under the ownership of the Justice of the Peace of Trelawney, Jamaica, D.O. Kelly Lawson. During World War II, World War II, they were shipping sugar and rums, though their rums were predominantly local or proprietary brands. Through hereditary lineage, the company came to be owned by the Farquharsons, which sounds eerily similar to Foursquare, the major distillery from Barbados. Not sure if there's any link there. They kept selling the rum locally all the way up to 2003, when they sold to Jamaica Sugar Company of Jamaica. A tad redundant, if you ask me. 
Known for the finest quality sugars on the island, the brand began exporting rums then exclusively to Europe, England, and Scotland. Eventually taken over by the Everglades Farms Limited, the new owners poured a ton of money into the brand and the community of Trelawney, growing the Hampton, the Hampton name among the locals. In fact, even to this day, some of the local accounts go back generations. In 2018, the first worldwide commercial bottling began. And although I give Hampton shit for being higher priced, they do have some of not only the best Jamaican rum, but some of the best rum in the market in general. The Hampton 8-year is a staple in my bar that I only break out for special occasions. Or with a fine cigar. Or after a tough day. Or just when I have a craving for the best Jamaican rum on a Tuesday. On a Tuesday. As for their overproof white variant, there's not too much to cover as it's made in the same style as Ray and Nephew. A blend of pot and column still rum made in the Jamaican fashion previously described with all the esters and the dunders and all that, but with a uniquely refined Hampton stylistic approach. On the nose, I find it initially has a smokiness, almost redolent of mezcal or clarin, but then it fades and an underlying sweetness comes out. Flavor-wise, not very stereotypically funky. I can definitely sense its appeal to the courtly rum lover. It's different enough to stand out, but perhaps too different. Which makes for a great comparison. Rumfire is not as alcoholy as the Ray, and a small amount of funk does make its presence known eventually. But seriously, it tastes way more earthy and smoky than traditional Jamaican rum. Though I admit while the bottle has aerated over the last few weeks, the smokiness has diminished. Now that we've met all the players, how do they stack up comparatively? Well, in order to find that out, we gotta make a drink! I'm sure I'm not the first one to have tried this little experiment. In fact, I know I'm not the first show to do it. And I'm guessing those of you who are fully entangled in Tiki do this sort of trial swapping all the time. But I don't really do this show for the people who already know. For y'all, it may just be an interesting, you know, and it might just be interesting to hear my take. Compare it to your own. And I don't do this show to pompously pontificate to people who know less than I do. No. I started this show wanting to share my experiences with tiki and tropical drinks and hopefully go on this journey alongside others who are finding their way in this wild, wild world of wantonly wasting away. That being said, this is how I conducted my trial. My control specimen was standard Ray and Ting. That is, one and a half ounces of J. Ray and Nephew white overproof rum and four ounces of Ting Jamaican grapefruit soda. Pour both ingredients into a regular rocks glass or a 10-ounce Collins. Add cubed ice and stir. Garnish with a lime wedge and, if you're feeling up to it, if you're feeling a little, a little froggy, go ahead and squeeze it and drop it in. The initial blast is strong funk, but it mellows out to a sweet grapefruit candy. Not cloyingly sweet and unpleasant, more like a deep, rich molasses mixed with summery notes. I would call it Sweet Rich Funk. There's a beachy vegetal profile sometimes. Like daytime on the beach in Montego Bay. Ocean lapping the soft sand. Heavy Jamaican chill vibes with a ton of flavor. A really nice drink. 
Before I move on to the next rum, I wanted to try the Ray with a different soda. Because Tang can be hard to get, I also made a version using Jaritos, the Mexican grapefruit soda we went uh, deep into in our Paloma episode. Now, this is my go-to brand for sodas because much like in the highly sought-after Mexican Cokes, Jaritos uses real cane sugar rather than the high-fructose corn syrup they poison us with in the U.S. And just so it doesn't sound like I'm too high up on Mount Pius, I'll let you know that I do enjoy the occasional Mountain Dew. I mean, come on. I just figure I'm already doing enough damage pouring copious amounts of rum into my body, so let me not push my luck with the sodas. I digress. As much as I love Jaritos grapefruit soda, it really can't hold a candle to ting, at least not paired with this style rum. The extra sour from Caribbean grapefruit is really necessary to cut through the high flavors of Jamaican rum. So if Jaritos is your only option, try squeezing the lime in or even even using a slice of grapefruit. As ting actually has the pulp of the grapefruit floating in the bottle. So, I mean, better, better ingredients, better ting. Now we move on to rum fire. I mixed uh, the rum fire and ting. I did a tasting with a buddy of mine the other night on some on just a random rum tasting, and he looked at me like I was crazy when I kept on calling rum fire smoky. Perhaps it's the earthy undertones like rich soil that's tricking my palate, but the fire and ting, as I'm calling it, lives up to the name. Smoky funk. That's all I can say. Again, it reminds me of a clarin or a mezcal or maybe even a lightly peated scotch, but with the sweetness of rum. How does it fare as a drink? Well, I feel like the alcohol is more prevalent, for one, and that distinct dirty campfire taste overpowers the sweet fruitiness of the ting. It kind of throws the balance off. Actually, it very much throws the balance off. Again, I don't want to sound like I'm coming down hard on rum fire. It just seems to be blended more for the connoisseur than a lazy beach highball. As with a lot of higher-end spirits, it's so they, sometimes they get so nuanced that they appear to have less flavor. At least less of the heavy, overripe funkiness one expects from a Jamaican rum. I understand a lot of folks love rum fire, and I promise I'm not just trying to be contrarian. But I wonder, do they really love rum fire, or do they just think they're supposed to love it because it's a Hampton Estate product? In conclusion, I honestly think traditional Ray and Ting is the clear winner. Maybe I simply have fond memories attached to that flavor and nostalgia is clouding my judgment. But I don't think millions of rum fans and visitors to the island can be wrong. Including Martin Kate, who put this drink in his tiki anthology, Smuggler's Cove. Smuggler's Cove? I don't know why I can't talk today. Haven't even had a Ray and Ting yet. Maybe that's the problem. This is just a delicious drink. Easy, all-around fun drink. A glass of Ray and Ting evokes a summery tropicality while simultaneously boasting an undeniable deep Jamaican funk. But, full transparency, this was not my favorite tasting, as if you know, if you've listened for any amount of time, you know I don't really care for overproof rums. Ray and Ting, or Ray and Nephew, gets a pass because it actually tastes good and it holds a sensory memory for me. Furthermore, light Jamaican rums in general are just not my bag. I love light, uh, a, a light, crisp rum, even sipping a light, crisp rum. But I find the rich funk of Jamaican works better with some age. 
That's not to say I don't crave the flavor on occasion, much like a mezcal or an extra peaty scotch, but especially in the high, rich funk notes of a pot still, like Hamilton or Dr. Bird, it just seems a bit out of balance without the softening of age. By the way, of the previous two rums, Hamilton is far superior. It's the only pot still light rum I buy for my home. Uh, I don't see what people see in Dr. Bird. Personally, I think it's kind of astringent, but anyway, yeah. This was a very slow tasting process for me, especially due to the fact that one Ray and Ting gets me drunk. On the other hand, I had a ton of fun writing this one because it allowed me to get back to how the podcast started. Mainly, relaying personal experiences I've had with the drink at hand. I found myself wistfully wanting to be back on the island, drinking beers and rum with my best friend, dodging hurricanes and waking up to the plumage of royal palms, flowing out from the green shaft that sprouts atop the tree like a bishop's hat. Fresh papaya and pastries for breakfast, paired with Jamaican coffee. There's plenty more to tell about this trip, like how they use their car horns while to say hi while driving, which can be a bit unnerving at first. And I'm sure this adventure will come up in future episodes, so maybe I do have a propensity for repeating the same stories. Or, despite my wife's teasing, maybe I'm not that old after all, and there's still time to go make some new ones. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tony, and this has been Pod Tiki. Sources for this episode can be found on the blog post for this episode on podtiki.com. Make sure that you follow podtiki.com on YouTube for all our little video snippets, and um, as soon as we get enough followers on there, we're going to start going live. New stuff coming out probably in the next couple of weeks. Go check out, get caught up on episodes of Inside the Mug, and I got some, some video tutorials for drinks up there. Just kind of fun to, to BS around. Also, check out all of our social media. Instagram, uh, we are pod underscore tiki. Find my personal page at rum underscore poet. And, of course, pod tiki on Facebook and across all the other stuff. Just find, just, just put in pod tiki. You'll find us. The podcast is available, of course, always at podtiki.com, where you can find our all of our archives every single episode, as well as a recipe index. If you want to just look up real quick the recipes. Uh, you can also find the podcast on Spotify, iHeart, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio. And that's all for plugs, except go and check out SurfSideSips.com. Those are the incredible purveyors of all your t- glass straw wear needs. Tiki straws, custom straws, the bamboo straws, the puffer fish, or just some regular old straight straws um all different sizes all different shapes all different angles they have kits set up where you can get like a bunch of different sizes as one so you can pretty much just get one pack and start your whole bar up and it's very affordable and everything from plain straws to super custom and not only that but andrew's a good guy who's always supported the podcast so we like to support them also we do that by putting in Pod Tiki at checkout. That's all caps, all one word, P-O-D-T-I-K-I at checkout at surfsidesips.com. You'll get 20% off your order, and I will get a little bit of a kickback. And most of all, he'll know that I'm the one sending you there so that we can continue to work together. Most of all, 
more importantly, paramount of it all, thanks for listening. Keep you safe out there, and keep you tiki.